Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Savannah Sippel is a writer from eastern Kentucky, from Appalachia. Her poems have recently been published in Appalachian Heritage, Waxwing, Talking River, The Offing, and The Louisville Review, and she is the proud writer, author, poet of a new collection called WWJD and other poems. It's so good to have you in front of our microphones uh, because this book has just come out. And how excited are you? I am very excited, Bill. Um, Thank you for having me on today. Um, It's been a little over two months since the book came out, and it's kept me very busy. So I am excited to be here and excited that my book is in the world. Well, it is in the world, and I know uh, how uh, fortunate uh, readers are uh, to pick this up and also the many, many people that you have um, been with along the way, uh, along this journey. I love the fact, and I've seen this um, with other writers uh, at the very end of your your notes, your your gratitude to so many people who've helped you, but I love the fact that you said uh, one more thank you, reader, for choosing my work. Whoever you are, I hope something in these pages helps you find a way to live your truth. And isn't it neat to be able to thanks a reader that supports you and supports bookstores and supports. Uh, all writers, uh, because they're the ones that pick these up. And you know a little bit about that because of your experience uh, at Briar Books in Lexington, uh, a bookstore that is still doing some pop-up work. Is that or are you? It is. We are still doing pop-ups and events, and we have um, a couple of conferences scheduled and some stuff coming up this summer. So we are uh, still at work and still online and and see what we can do to sustain it. So, Well, let's start uh, a little bit earlier than that, and that's just uh, your story and where you're from, and um, uh, we'll sort of uh, lead into writing and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, where'd, you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Beattyville, which is about 20 minutes um, east of Red River Gorge, and I grew up in a little community there called Bear Track, it's this uh, little holler off of Highway 52 in Lee County, and uh, I lived at Bear Track um, until I was 15, and uh, it was, we lived literally in the middle of the woods. I think our closest neighbor was a half a mile away, so we had um, free reign of the woods and um, the land around us. We moved when I was 15 because our um, family home burned. So we moved closer to town to my grandmother's house. She had passed away and left the house to my father and his brother. And so we moved there. And we were, I was a teenager and my brother was coming into being a teenager. And so we were keeping, I think, my mom busy with sports and all the things we were involved in and At that point, by then, both of my parents worked for the school system, and so 
being closer to town also made sense logistically. So when you lived in the uh, in the woods, uh, were you still going to the to the county school at that time? Yeah, we uh, there was only the, by then there was just the county schools. There weren't the smaller schools out in the communities. We had two elementary schools, and then the middle school and the high school was one gigantic building that they technically kept separate, but they shared a hallway. Um, I think now there's just one elementary school, so um, we went, I rode a bus in. Um, my bus ride actually wasn't that long, maybe 30 minutes, hmm. you know, to yeah, pick everyone some, up and get there. For some, that's a long ride, though. That's true. <laughs> so when did, how, how was your experience growing up in a small town? Uh, certainly living in the woods, and now uh, you moved to the to town, uh, as they say. Yeah. And, uh uh, was that was that a good experience for you? I mean, in a lot of ways, it was a good experience. Um, there's something, there are definitely benefits to growing up with people and being familiar with the same people your whole life. Um, people really care for you. Um, you know, when things happen, like your home burning, then you really have a support system to help you get through it. Um, I think that there were points where I struggled growing up there um I always understood that I would have to leave and I don't know if that's always true for everyone or if it's true for people from bigger areas um but I always understood that I would probably have to leave um there just weren't a lot of opportunities. Did you know, and I really mean this because this is a, a topic of some discussion about people leaving, about young people. Did you know you were from Appalachia, that you were from Eastern Kentucky? Did that? Uh, I grew up in South Central Kentucky, and and it was a different era and a different generation, but I never gave it a second thought until after I had left and, and was an adult, but I left uh, not, not for the reasons that I thought I had to. Uh, so did you know growing up uh, that, that you were an Appalachian? <clears throat> I don't know that I, I knew that we were technically part of Appalachia. I knew we lived in the mountains, although there was a point where I remember realizing just like how in the mountains we were. And I think it's because when you live in the landscape and that's the landscape you're a part of, in your day-to-day life and almost all of your life you don't think about how steep the inclines are when you're going down the hill to school or you know whatever um the thing that I think kept coal mining had left my town by the time I came along and so for me I always associated Appalachia like real Appalachia with the parts of the region that had to deal with coal. And so I felt like maybe we were on the edge. And geographically, we kind of are on the edge, but not real, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, so I had some awareness of being Eastern Kentuckian and being a Southerner and technically part of Appalachia, but I don't know if I deeply identified with it until later i think did your folks uh they were educators did Mm -hmm. did you travel to lexington uh, often or did you uh, go the other way or did you well it's funny (laughs) they were um they were blue collar my mother um was a school cook and my father was maintenance supervisor and so but they did make huge efforts to 
help us have different experiences. I had, was much more fortunate than a lot of people that I knew um, in that what little extra money they had, they did bring us to Lexington. Um, it was a huge thing around Christmas. We would come and spend the weekend mm-hmm. and um, stay in a hotel, which was a big deal, and mm-hmm. go downtown to Victoria's, Victorian Square and... Um, you know, those kinds of things only happened once or twice a year, but they, you know, they were very mindful mm-hmm. of wanting us to know that there was more out there. My mother was very mindful about wanting us both to be able not only to drive, but to feel comfortable driving like in Lexington or outside of, um, in bigger cities and outside of Appalachia. Um, so they, they did want us to have and those kinds of experiences. So you graduated from high school, and then what? I went to Western Kentucky University. Um, Go Tops. Yeah. <laughs> um, I went there. I had gone to visit, and when I went to visit, met a couple of English professors who just completely um, I became enamored with. They were fantastic people. Who besides Mary Ellen Miller? Um, there was a professor named Walker Rutledge who was – Still there, and I think moving into retirement by this point. But he um, was this gentleman who wore a bow tie, and he could rattle off all of these literary facts and historical tidbits of information. And um, I had lunch with him and lunch with a professor named Dr. Patricia Taylor, who has since passed away. But she was this eccentric redhead who loved Sherlock Holmes, and took a group to study abroad in England every couple of years, and I ended up actually traveling with her my last semester. And so I traveled a lot with Professor Rutledge as well. And so um, I went to visit, and they they completely sold me that and my scholarship. So, <laughs> well, isn't it wonderful for you, for young people, to mm-hmm. have that experience if they've never had that before? I mean, that that's uh, that's such a, a genuine uh, gift. Yeah, uh, that you can be so uh, opened to uh, to the world at that time. Yeah, I mean, I feel um, fortunate to have had the experiences I had while I was at Western. I did travel quite a bit, both with my classes, but also outside of my classes. Um, and I, I, I mean, I did choose Western because they offered me the most scholarship money. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I liked the school so much, but, um, and so I was fortunate in that too. I mean, I worked very hard for those scholarships, but, uh, and to keep them. Um, but you know, I think that any opportunity a student has, especially a young person has to travel, um, is a good thing. Yeah. So. And you just told me, um, uh, that, uh, after you graduated from Western, you, you went right into the MFA program at Spalding. I did. I started um, at Spalding that fall. And so I had, um, there were a couple of things that happened that made me decide low residency was the best option for me. And um, started at Spalding and um, worked with some fantastic people there. Um, It allowed me to also um, I actually went back home at that point, um, and I helped take care of my grandmother, who was in a what we thought was a rapid decline in her health, but she stuck around for much longer than we had thought she might. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a tough old bird, but um, 
So it allowed me to, I worked full time and I learned how to balance my work life with my writing life. And I worked with some fantastic mentors and students. Were you you already writing poetry? I was. I've been writing poetry for quite a while at that point. And I I don't think I took it. I took it seriously, but I don't think I ever considered it as a lifelong commitment until I worked with Mary Ellen Miller at Western. And she said to me, she's like, you have, um, you have a talent. She said, you're really smart, but you also have a talent and you, you need to get your acting gear Mm. and really consider what, not wasting this. And so I paid attention to her. Um, I also discovered creative nonfiction while I was at Western and wrote um, a lot of nonfiction there. And Who were your mentors there in, in nonfiction? Because that was my genre. I, I took a class with um, Dr. Del Rigby, but the professor who really shaped my understanding of creative nonfiction there was Dr. Judith Zerdehay. Hmm. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um she was, and she's still there. Um, she taught a memoir class and a couple of other nonfiction courses. And she just, she introduced me to different forms and ways of looking at nonfiction. And um, I, ha- I had just always just thought prose was so daunting, especially fiction, but even not, I hadn't even considered yeah. nonfiction. Did, did, at Spalding, did you have uh, Richard Goodman or Roy Hoffman or Diane April or... I worked with Richard. Um, he, I did a cross-genre workshop and worked with him. And then I think Phil Deaver as well. Yeah. And I enjoyed both of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my, po- my mentors through the semesters were all poets. But I enjoyed those cross-genre workshops. I learned a lot. You've mentioned uh, now the director of the Spalding MFA program, Kathleen Driscoll, mm-hmm. uh, a recognized poet in her own right and mm-hmm. now the director of the school. Who, what what other uh, mentors did you work with? I worked with Greg Pape mm-hmm. and um, Deborah Kang Dean and Molly Peacock. Yeah. Um, I worked with Molly during Mike's third semester when I did my extended critical essay. Yeah. This is, uh, we'll have to apologize to our listeners, uh, but uh, <laughs> this is like old home week. Uh, uh, Molly Peacock is this marvelous, wonderful uh, uh, a writer, mm-hmm. a poet, um, a essayist, uh, who's just probably one of the most memorable uh, teachers in, in in a setting that you find at Spalding. Uh, so well read and literate, and mm-hmm. and and so well spoken and so sophisticated. Uh, but but uh, among among others too, there. Yeah, uh, she really pushed my critical thinking. Um. And she pushed me hard because she said, we're going to knock this essay out quick so that you can write. And I said, okay. And she wasn't joking. We got it done in the first few packets. And, <laughs> yeah. But she challenged me. Um, they all challenged me, but Molly was fantastic. And Kathleen, of course, was just, I think, a little bit life-changing. So, so you, um, and then you left Spalding and, and, and what? I left Spalding. And um, the, the, while I was at Spalding, I had been working full-time in a field that I um, knew very little about, but it was television production. And um, 
I beca- I had at that point I was a vi- doing videography work and video editing, and I was a production manager for a nightly um, television service, and so um, I continued to do that, and I started applying for teaching positions. I had always, to some extent, wanted to teach. There was a point where I think there was a part of me that wanted to teach because I thought that was one of my only options. And particularly growing up, and I don't mean that as a bad thing. It sounds like it, but it's not. But growing up in a small town, teachers really shape who you are. I mean, I think they have a huge influence, period. But coming from a small town where so much of your life revolves around school, even your extracurricular activities usually come through the school. And so um, teachers just, I mean, had influenced me in so many big ways so I always thought that would be a way a good way to give back and to also you know shape other people um and there came a point where I um decided I wanted to focus on higher ed and particularly work with first generation college students or first year students Mm -hmm. um and I started applying for positions, and I adjuncted for a little bit, and then I got a fir- my first full-time position working at a community college, which I um, I love those students. And so they're challenging in many ways, but they're also very rewarding. And so that's been my path um, with my career. Um, Were you I- more serious about your poetry at that at that time? I was. Um, I think at that time, particularly the first couple years of having a full-time position, I was trying very hard to keep my position, but also to show that I deserve to be promoted and all you know, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So writing didn't, it didn't take a full back seat, but it, you know, it's hard to write sometimes during the academic year, especially if you have um, yeah. as many classes as I was trying to teach those first few years. Um, there did come a point where I realized I, I deserved or needed to spend a little more time with writing, but also with things in my personal life. And so, um, I decided to move to Lexington and, um, my dean at the college was like, you know, we don't want to lose you. Um, have you considered commuting? And I said, there's no way I can commute every day. And so we had an arrangement where I agreed to teach more online courses because they had a huge need for that. And I would have in-person classes two or three days a week. And so that's what we did um, for several years. And it worked well. Um, The online classes were a different kind of beast. Mm -hmm. Um, Some uh, professors either love it or or hate hate it. it. And there's a big push to make everyone do it. And I understand that, especially when you have a huge need for those courses, mm-hmm. but I also think you're getting in, you know, it's a little dangerous to make someone do it if they don't want to, because you want those courses to be taught well. Um, they can be really beneficial to some students. Um, and you want to make sure you've got people there who want to do it. Yeah. Um, and you did that for several years. Were you writing some of the work that I was, I was working on, I started a manuscript. I think the idea came for it 
my first the first year I went to the Appalachian Writers Workshop. I've been writing poems and I didn't really have a clear thought of where they were going or if they were contributing to anything larger. Um, but I was trying to write persona poems, which are poems in someone else's voice. And I was trying to write about Appalachia and write about um, the Appalachian experience because so much of what is portrayed in the media is one-sided. <laughs> and I thought, how do you counter that? Mm-hmm. How do you present the whole picture? Not just the beautiful picture, but the whole complicated picture mm-hmm. without it turning into poverty porn or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started writing persona poems and trying to focus and get those stories out. And I did that for multiple years and kept trying to write those poems, revise those poems, see how they fit in a collection. And then um, I met Rebecca Gilhowell at Heinemann and had her workshop. And she read my workshop sample and um, she said, you have, there's a story here. She said, but there's a piece missing. And I think it's a piece that's holding the whole book back. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, okay, what is it? And she's like, it's not in your voice. Mm -hmm. She's like, in persona poems and persona poetry, they have a place and they can be very important and powerful. She said, but your work as it stands right now is missing your voice and it needs your voice. And so um, I talked her into taking me on as a private Mm -hmm. student. I... (laughs) I convinced her that two dozen cans of home canned tomatoes and I don't know several cans of green beans were worth working for me for a couple, <laughs> working with me for a couple months, and yeah. so um, that you had canned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. I got her to agree to it, and then I went home and canned all weekend. Oh my so. goodness! Yeah. <laughs> it was. Um, yeah. She says it was one hundred percent worth it. Um, but so I started working with her and we tore that manuscript apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, she was right. Of course she was right. Um, and in the middle of all of this, I decided to come out and. So um, you, you had not done that up I until had this not. point. And that, and that was how long ago? It was in 2015. Okay. And part of why I moved to Lexington in 2013 and part of why I moved was I wasn't ready to come out, but I knew that I would not be able to do so living in Appalachia. That's not true for everybody. Um, And there are tons of people who are there who live out and people there doing the work to support the LGBTQ community. I knew that I could not come out and stay in my hometown. And so I moved and... um, by 2015, I was ready, and so I came out and tore a manu- poetry manuscript to pieces all at once, and started writing and trying to write a lot. And was that a uh, was coming out a uh, catharsis? Was it a heavy burden lifted? It was. It was, and I think what it allowed me to do was, um, I mean, because. In my writing, I've always tried to be as authentic as possible. But when you're denying a part of who you are, it's hard to do that. And so I think it just, um, once I let go of that and came out, 
I just gave myself permission to mm. write the poems mm-hmm. and let let whatever concerns I had go. Um, on the uh, on your website, your personal website, um, mm-hmm. it, it is different from the book uh, uh, back of the book cover, which I read, uh, and, and so I'm going to read mm-hmm. from the uh, about section. Uh, Savannah Sippel is the author of WWJD and Other Poems, which explores what it is to be a queer woman in Appalachia and is rooted in its culture and in her body. With a beer-drinking Jesus as her wingman, she navigates the difficult terrain of stereotype conservative evangelicalism and perhaps most shame. A writer from East Kentucky, her writing has recently been published and I read the rest of that. So... Mm -hmm. That's the um, the version I read on the back cover, and then the version that uh, that, that you write in your uh, on your website. It really doesn't make any difference. It's who you are, and mm-hmm. and 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 what you're you're writing about. And I want to. You, you've got so many uh, you've got so many fans. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this. People that that you owe a a great deal of gratitude to, but you know, a lot of people who recognize and and honor you for the work that you do and the professional that you uh that you've become and now in a position to maybe mentor other Mm -hmm. writers Mm -hmm. um uh, our friend uh your your good close friend silas house wrote savannah sippel is the poet we need right now in this moment when it feels like the heart and conscience of our nation is being ripped out by the roots Silas is a good writer, isn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you think he wrote that? I mean, I think um, I think Silas connects with um, a lot of my experiences. Um, I think he, I mean, he's also been there um, as a, not as a direct writing mentor, but as a mentor and um, as a friend. Um I asked him because I knew that he would understand the work, but that whatever he said would do the work justice. I didn't want someone who was going to write me a pretty blurb because they know me. Um, I knew that he would take his time and consider the poems. And um, yeah, but I mean, he's also he's been there and seen my process as a poet. Some of a couple of the poems were published as earlier versions in Steel. Um, and he's also seen me make progress personally. Um, he And so, you know, he really understands the heart of where the poems are coming from. So all of, do you ever look at it this way? All of who you are mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. comes from the woods and moving to town. <laughs> And Western and Spalding and teaching and Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is just uh, the, the most wonderful uh, place in the world to spend uh, a week in the last uh, part of July. It, it's all of who you are, and it's in this volume. I think, I don't know if the entire me is encompassed in the book, but I think. A huge part. My, I think there are more details or more of my story to be t- that needs to be told. But my journey through 
you know, living in Appalachia and surviving um, different things, different experiences, um, growing up in a culture that is very patriarchal, um, that there is some deep-rooted misogyny. Um, Coming through that as a very strong-headed, independent woman from for as long as I can remember. I can remember being a little kid and just being stubborn as heck because I wanted to do what the boys could do. And um yeah, I've had I've had a lot of different experiences and a lot of them um yes, are captured in the book. Um and it's all very complicated. Um but uh, I think what I hear you saying is that there's more to come. There is more to come. And you're probably writing about that. <laughs> Today. I am. I'm writing. Um, a, I'm writing nonfiction right now. I'm writing. Uh, I'm also still writing some poems, but um, in terms of like a specific project, I'm writing essays that I that will either shape into a memoir, or I'm also going to have a memoir. There's either there's a couple of books coming out of it. Mm. Um, I'm right. I'm in the middle of the hard work of that right now, and yeah. so, um, but um, my poetry collection, you know, it captures it captures a lot. Um, there are more stories and more details or whatever, but um, and I will always be a poet. Um, that's one of the things I've had a lot of fun with that I've allowed myself to do in writing. Nonfiction is being a poet in my nonfiction and mm-hmm. um, using one to inform the other. And so, would you um, would you read something for us as I we can, close yeah. out? Of course. Um, is there a certain one? No, I'm going to let you choose, uh, and 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 let you um, look me, at one and decide what what's best. Let me think. How long do we have? <laughs> Whatever you want to read is fine. Uh, Folks can uh, tell that this is live podcasting. Um, of course, yeah, that's okay. When it's not rehearsed. Um, and sometimes we do that before we go uh, on to the recorder, but um, I'm sure you'll choose something uh, that you're, you're familiar with all of that work. I'm going to pick one, and it ironically, it's one I haven't read a whole lot at readings um, yet. Um, it's called After Seeing a Topo Map of My Childhood Stomping Grounds Hanging in a Colleague's Home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it has an epigraph. And it says, cartographers solve the problem of representing the three-dimensional land surface on a flat piece of paper by using contour lines. Thus, horizontal distances and vertical elevations can both be measured from a topographic map. And that's from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, their digital atlas. Once, when I was a kid, to scare a bear, my father walked one side of the trail and fired a rifle. The bear ran down the other side. 
The mouth of the trail came out at the edge of the woods in front of the house. That low dip line was the home run fence I aimed for when we played baseball in the yard. The bases were trees, and home plate was right in front of our playroom windows. If you rounded third, you always made it home because we get our asses beat over broken glass. That was our benchmark, the one thing we knew. He could beat us. I knew the difference between a rabbit burrow and a snake hole, but I was scared of both. Spent hours perched around the shaded incline between yard and woods. Knew both contained something that could kill me. Once, I flipped a go-kart turning out of our drive too sharply. Once, I drove a four-wheeler straight into a tree. I once pitched head over handlebars off my bike onto the gravel road trying to outrace a loose dog. A vertical exaggeration. The neighbor who found me thought I'd been hit by a car. Mom sat me in the garden tub, poured two bottles of rubbing alcohol all over my wounds to stop the threat of infection. At basketball practice, I once refused to take a charge, and the guard, shorter than me, stood nose to chest bone, said, do you know who you're messing with? At home, bruises littered my ribs. At home, an agonic line split my arm after every time my father stood in my face and screamed, do you know who you're talking to? One inch equals 10 miles. I was 15 and had a higher ACT score than the point guard a senior, a line. I was top in my class, a line, all lines. Once I had a line drive into my brother's chest. Twice his fist found my nose. A relief. Every time we hurt each other, we cried. The contours tighten. I wrecked my truck, flipped a golf cart, crashed my car, kept telling myself I was lucky. When I was little, I kept bronchitis. My father gave me vodka for the cough. My lungs on fire. My kidneys on fire. My house on fire, years later, felt like a line, elevated. One that would bleed me dry, scar me. One that would leave me marked. Savannah Sipple from (laughs) WWJD and other poems. And that's, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for having me. Well, it's been uh, wonderful. You are... As Silas and many others have said, you're a, a new voice. Um, you've been a voice, and you've known that for many, many years, and now you are a new voice uh, uh, that others will celebrate. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.